0: And when we refinance the property nine months later into into our typical 10-year fixed rate loan, it appraised for $2 million above our purchase price. Are you ready for the best real estate investing advice ever? Join Joe Fairless and today's best ever guests as they share it with you. It's the best ever advice with none of the fluff. Let's go.
1: Heard of crowdfunding and still curious about how you can benefit from it? Well, we've got a step-by-step guide put together just for you by the best-ever team and Patch of Land, the industry's leading crowdfunding experts. The best crowdfunding crash course ever, episodes 152, 159, 166, and 173, will provide you all you need to know to get started and begin benefiting immediately, whether it's getting access to funds for your project or passively investing in other people's deals. The time is now. To get started with Patch of Land, go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever to grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's patchoflen D.com forward slash best ever. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless, and I'm with our guest today, Sean Sweeney. Hi, Sean.
0: Hey, Joe. How are you?
1: Doing well. Thank you for being on the show. And Sean is joining us from Minneapolis, Minnesota. He is extremely focused in the multifamily space. And let me tell you a little bit about his experience. You're going to be impressed. He's been a real estate professional for over 11 years. And he's been focused on multifamily during those 11 years. He has a company called Timberland Partners. It's a two-person team. And if I were to stop right now and I were to ask you from a two, with a two-person team, multifamily, how many multifamily units do you think they've been able to acquire? What would you say? Well, whatever your answer is, probably at least double it. <laughs> they've been able to acquire over 4,000 multifamily units with a combined value of over 250 250 million dollars. And non-real estate related One of the most interesting facts we've had on the show, and you're probably like in the high 200s episode, Sean, is that he was on the movie What Women Want, uh, the movie with Mel Gibson, and he's actually had dinner with Mel Gibson. Uh, So he is a man of many talents. With that being said, Sean, can you give the Best Ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now?
0: Sure. I'd love to, Joe. And uh, hi, Best Ever listeners. Uh, really happy to be here with you guys today and, and certainly grateful, Joe, for the opportunity to, to chat with you. Um, before I dive in, I, let, me, let me take one step back and just qualify uh, my two-person team. We've got a huge team here. Uh, our acquisitions team is two people. Um, so it is technically just two of us putting the deals together, but we do have a, a pretty big infrastructure behind us that helps support that. So, uh, I can't take, can't take full credit for all that, <laughs> all 4,000 units. We've got a, a good team behind us as well.
1: Just take half credit, not full. Yeah. Well, then here, I'll
0: take credit for 2,000. <laughs> right. Uh, well, yeah, I can tell you a little bit about my background. So as you mentioned, Joe, I was, uh, I had a, a couple of years in a the acting world. Uh, it was a, <laughs> I'd like to say a really fun experience, but not a very lucrative time. Uh, I I spent about three years auditioning, uh, taking classes, doing other things, trying to trying to make it in the, the world as an actor, and uh, didn't didn't go as well as I had hoped, but had some fun stories. Um, I got out of acting actually. Maybe you've heard of uh, Jeremy Piven? He's one of the lead characters in the movie uh, Entourage, and was certainly Absolutely. on the show for a long time. His dad, Byrne Piven, was one of my acting teachers in Chicago, and I was—I worked for about two years to get into a, a class with him. He had to audition, and I kept not getting accepted, but eventually I did, and about three weeks in, I was so excited to be in this class. Uh, Byrne took me aside after class, and he said, you know, Sean, you strike me as somebody that's too normal to be an actor, and I said, I'm not sure if this is a compliment or you're, <laughs> you're making fun of me or what exactly is going on here. <laughs> Uh, And he looked at me and he said, listen, if there's anything else in the whole world that you can do and be happy, go do it. He said, this is a really tough road that you've chosen. And his son at this time was not famous at all. I mean, was, you know, had been a sidekick to John Cusack in a couple of movies and he used Jeremy as an example. And he said, listen, my son is a fantastic actor. He's in his early thirties. He's been doing this for 20 years and he still sleeps on his friend's couches. You know, if you're, if you're happy to, be 50 years old and, and and be sleeping on couches waiting for your big break. Then then let's do this and I'll help you. I'll help you get there. Uh, but if there's anything else you can do, I'd be happy. Please go do that. Uh, I took that advice and and went home and kind of was like, I'm not sure what to make of that exactly. Uh, in a in a sad twist, he actually passed away about two weeks after he told me that, um, which was which was tough. And he had had cancer and not told uh, most of us. Uh, so I took that as a sign that it was time to find something else to do. And, and funny enough, two years later, when his son, when Entourage became a big hit, his son, Jeremy, you know, won an Emmy for his role and got up on stage and gave his, his speech and, you know, was thanking everyone and, and took a moment and said, you know, I need to thank my dad. My dad used to take people aside and say, hey, um, this is a really tough road. If there's anything you want to ever go do, please go do it. And Jeremy, he took his Emmy and he stuck it up in the air and he looked at the sky and he said, dad, all I ever wanted to do was be an actor. I happened to be watching it and got goosebumps and was like, wow, I can't believe that that happened. And and he told me that. Wow. Which was pretty crazy. But so I took took that um, thought about going to law school, like a lot of liberal arts majors thought about going to law school, worked in a had the pleasure to work in a law firm for about a year after my acting career. Didn't like it at all. Just thought it was not the right place for me. Ended up moving to California. My my girlfriend and I at the time, who's not my wife, we're living in Chicago. We moved out to California so she could go to graduate school. And I had to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. Um, got, a, got a nice sales job at a money management firm, but quickly realized I, I wasn't really into that and was talking to as many people as I can, trying to figure out you know what other options are out there, what, what other kinds of things are out there uh hadn't but you know hadn't had a business school hadn't had a business degree didn't really know kind of what to do i had an uncle who was actually developing some really cool properties at the time and he was one of the people i talked to and the longer i talked to him the more i thought wow this is this is really interesting and really exciting and i, I like design and uh, i i thought i'd be good at kind of managing teams and putting people together and thought hey i'm going to be a real estate developer i was i was probably 25 at this time <laughs> So I set out to do that, sent out resumes, looked for a job for a long time, and, and as you can probably imagine, didn't have much luck. Apparently, real estate developers don't want to take a chance on a, on a former actor as a project manager <laughs> who has no experience and no real estate knowledge. Uh, what I quickly figured out is, hey, I've probably got to go to grad school. I've got to have a little bit more credibility behind me uh while I'm looking for this job. But in the meantime I kept sending out resumes looking for, for opportunities and, and one day I got a phone call from this, this really nice woman and she said, Hey, I got your resume, but you look like you have a sales background and we're looking for a receptionist. Huh. And I said, Well, you know, I'm I'm interested because Joe, my plan was hey, if somebody'll talk to me, I'll go talk to them and maybe I can get a lead out of the situation. Right. Maybe maybe they'll help point me in the right direction or, or give me some good advice or something. Uh, So this woman said, Hey, you know, we'd be interested in meeting with you if if you were interested. And I said, Great, let's let's do it. Uh, Turns out their office was about an hour away from my apartment at the time. So I drove up there, met with them had just had a great feeling about the people I met. And uh, long story short, about two weeks later, they offered me the job to be the receptionist. Uh, I, everybody I told about that told me I was crazy. And that probably wasn't a very good idea. Um, I was going to take about a 50% pay cut and, and drive an hour away uh, each day, commute an hour a day. But I had this really good feeling about these guys. And they, they made me a deal and said, listen, if you can come in here, show us you're a hustler, show us you care about real estate, you know, at some point, we'll give you more to do. And they told me that was going to be a year or two. So I decided, OK, let's do it. Luckily enough, they got busy quickly. And you know, two, three months in, they said, hey, do you know how to do Excel? I said, sure. I didn't. But I went home at night and figured out how to do it. Took a couple of night classes at Berkeley and uh, got up to speed on real estate as quickly as I could. And within one year at that firm, I was actually made a project manager, managing large apartment communities and condo developments uh, up and down Silicon Valley. So I was with that firm uh, for about five or six years. Ran, as I said, ran you know major condo developments and apartment developments in the San Francisco area uh, up until 2009. And then in 2009. Uh, when the economy slowed my wife who's from minneapolis and i grew up in madison wisconsin had always thought about moving back to the midwest uh things had been going well at that firm so it didn't feel like a, a good move but when the market slowed i thought hey this this would be a time to take that chance so i was fortunate found a job uh, as an asset manager here for a large multifamily family developer uh, helping them i spent a couple of years helping them clean up a portfolio of troubled assets i was flying all over the country, uh, reassuring lenders, residents, tenants, mayors, anybody that was had a vested interest in the property that, that we were on it and we would get it fixed. Uh, then in, in late, I was also networking a lot, uh, being new to Minneapolis. And in late 2011, as the market began improving, uh, this opportunity at Timberland Partners presented itself to me. Uh, the company had a, a little over 5,000 units at the time and was looking to grow and, and wanted somebody to help in that growth. And I was really fortunate that I, I was given the opportunity, and um, we haven't really looked back. I've spent the last four years scouring the country for apartment deals, and as you mentioned earlier, we've we've taken the company from a little over 5,000 units to uh, a little over 9,300 right now.
1: So many things to talk about. I'm going to start with your approach to um, just your, your business approach when you, you throw yourself into situations, and then you figure out how to react after you put yourself in that situation. You know, there's, there's a lot of examples here. When you were at the, the job that you had, but you were applying and you ended up being getting the receptionist job, what's that like from a, a psychological standpoint to have the 50% pay cut and to do different type of responsibilities? Not One's not better than the other. It's just different type of responsibilities sure. than you were used to doing.
0: Well, the first word I would use is humbling. It was amazing. I mean, I I sat, I literally sat at the front desk and was the receptionist. And people would come in. The guys I worked for made made a point to introduce me to everybody as the receptionist. I mean, they really put, they really put me through the ringer. We'd have you know bankers and and other folks come in, and, and some, <laughs> frankly, Joe weren't much older than I was. And, and they would say, Hey, this is Sean. He's our receptionist. Can he get you a cup of coffee? Can he make you some copies? What what would you like him to do for you? Uh, they really they really tested me, and it was a uh, as I said, very humbling. But you know, it, it, any ego or any any sense of me being better than others or having any any sort of feelings like that that, that quickly erased them. And I think it really taught me that you know you got to dig deep and and start from the bottom and work hard. And it doesn't really matter what what people say to you in the meantime.
1: What have you learned from the the variety of experiences that you've had, and how have you applied that to your business now? You know, you've been at a law firm. Sales job at a money management company. You've been an actor with Mel Gibson. You've been a receptionist. Oh my God, you can't make that up. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> it sounds funny just hearing all that. It
0: sounds bizarre. I can't really believe that's me.
1: It sounds bizarre. It sounds bizarre. Yes, it does. <laughs> if there was a theme song to this episode, it'd be that How Bizarre, How Bizarre. Exactly. <laughs> What have you take away from those experiences that you've applied to, to what you're doing now, acquiring multifamily?
0: Sure. Well it, it you know, I think one of the things that you, you touched on already, Joe, is that it really taught me that that I can jump into things and figure them out as I go. And, and as you know, being a real estate investor yourself, that's that's a lot of what real estate investing is. Is you know, looking at something, trying to figure something out and, and never knowing how it's gonna turn out or what's gonna happen the next day, the next week or the next month. Uh, I know you've mentioned you're involved in a development project. So I'm sure you're seeing that firsthand that what you probably planned out a year or two ago is is happening to some degree. But I bet there's been a lot of twists and turns in the road uh, as you've been going. So I think that's that's certainly something that I've learned that it's it, it's never going to be a straight line. It's it's never going to be exactly how you plan it out. And what you want to do is is have the best team around you possible and and try to do your best to to figure it out as you go. So I think that's that's certainly one thing. I, I think being in in those you know those various industries as we as you said uh, has also taught me that you know successful people and, and people in general are, are not really that different. Everybody kind of wants the same things and I, and I think people want people they want to do business and they want to deal with people they like and people that are nice and and, and things of, of that nature as well. So I think it's it's really taught me how to be good about, interacting and getting to know a a large variety of different types of people.
1: Now I want to switch gears to acquisitions and multifamily, your your, uh, bread and butter. When you're looking at a property and you have to make a judgment call on it in five minutes, how do you quickly, just back of the napkin, how does your brain work when you run the numbers? What are the questions you ask yourself? And what are you looking for?
0: I think to to start with, Joe, the the quick answer is, you know, at Timberland Partners here, we have uh, kind of a target that we're looking for. Uh, We're primarily long-term holders. So we're looking for buildings, apartment communities built typically in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, usually class B suburban type properties, 150 units or greater uh, located in what we consider A and B locations. And we think that each property we, we look at or, or want to acquire needs to have some value add component that could be physically adding value to the property or on the management side, uh, adding value. So the first step in my process is just to kind of think about it from that point of view. Does it fit most of those, those boxes, if you will, right away? Then I dig quickly dig a little bit deeper into each one and think, okay, look, I look at the location, How do I feel about that? And probably most important, Joe, is is what's the story behind this property? Who owns it? Why are they selling it? What's their motivation? And is there some opportunity for the next buyer to add some value to that property, as I said, in in one way or another? Uh, My next move is to quickly, if it kind of meets all those uh, things, call the broker, call whoever's in charge. Uh, have a quick conversation with them, try to get a sense of, of where they think it's going to shake out pricing wise, how many people are looking at it, how competitive it's going to be and all that. And then what I'll quickly do, Joe, is, is look at the income statement or, or any information I have about the numbers. And I'll do a very, very quick back of the envelope analysis where I'll look at the income. I'll, I'll use, you know, let's say 50 percent for expenses. I'll come up with an NOI I'll then, you know, divide that by the cap rate and I'll see what the price looks like for me on a a price per unit and and an overall price. And if that feels like it's in the range of kind of what they were thinking and what we're thinking, then I'll dive in and spend more time. But that's kind of my process because we'll see, you know, in a good week, I'll have 20, 30 deals across my desk and I don't have time to, you know, spend five hours underwriting each one. I have to quickly kind of weed through which ones I want to spend more time on and which ones I don't. Uh, so that that's kind of my quick and dirty process to to at least get to the next step a lot of times.
1: When you do the fifty percent expenses, is that fifty percent of the effective gross income or is that fifty percent of the potential?
0: I usually do fifty percent of the effective gross income,
1: so you're factoring in the the vacancies and uh, the other income and all that already
0: exactly i'm I'm taking all that into account quickly. And then doing 50% of that, and you know, as as you know, Joe, it, it on a nicer, you know, newer built property, those expenses might be closer to 42 to 43%. And on an older, you know, 60s or 70s built deal, those could be higher, 55 to 60. So I'll take that into account as well. But a lot of, as I said before, a lot of what we look at is 80s and 90s built stuff. So of our portfolio, that's about 9,300 units, our expenses range from about 48% on the low end to about 52 on the high end. So at least for me, it's a pretty good rule of thumb that I can use. It, it, as you say, you know, as we go further into the process, we will obviously dive into each one of those line items with a, with a fine tooth comb and, and really dig in and see what the actual numbers are. But that's just a quick and easy way at the beginning to know if it's something I should spend more time on or not.
1: And do you have a, a certain spreadsheet that you use to do those numbers quickly versus, you know, the one that is the 5, 7, 10, you know, whatever pro forma?
0: When I do the the quick back of the envelope, a, a lot of times I'll literally do it on the back of a piece of paper. When we when we dig in a little more, I do have like a one page sheet where what I can do is quickly put in uh, whatever trailing numbers I have from the the seller, and then make up a, a year one pro forma myself and kind of see how how my what I think will happen, will relates to what's currently happening, then if we move past that point, we have a, a massive spreadsheet that has you know, 20 tabs on it that we use to, to analyze all aspects of the property.
1: That one-page sheet, is that something that is proprietary to uh, your group, or could you share that with the best ever listeners?
0: No, I could definitely, I could definitely share that. I mean, it's it's literally an Excel sheet that I put together that has three or four different columns on it, a couple of formulas, and and that's it. So I'd be I'd be happy to share that.
1: Awesome, yeah. If, if you can email that to me, and then uh, best ever listeners, I'll include that in the show notes of this episode, so that you just go to the show notes page on my website, and then you can download it yourself and and grab it sure all right this is you have such an interesting background and um just i i I, and i love talking multifamily too because that's what i'm focused on so i'm really enjoying our conversation sean
0: (laughs) me too thanks joe
1: well here we go here here's the kind of the kicker for this show sean what is your best real estate investing advice ever
0: so I've, I've been extremely fortunate, as, as we've kind of talked, I've had a, a, a lot of different experiences. Um, and, and in my time in real estate, I have been so fortunate that I've been able to learn this craft from people I consider some of the masters of the industry. Um, I've learned a lot from a lot of different people. So the best real estate investing advice I've ever received is be easy to do business with and make your brokers look good.
1: How do you deliver on be easy and make them look good? So there's, there's a few different ways to do it. I mean, and if you think about it kind
0: of from a big picture, who do brokers and sell, you know, anytime you get into a multifamily deal, you're going to spend the next two to three months interacting a lot with, with a certain broker and a certain seller. Uh, so I try to think about it from their point of view and think, if I'm the broker, if I'm the seller, who's the kind of person I want to spend the next two or three months talking to? You know, is it the guy that yells at them every time something goes wrong? Or, hey, is it the guy that's really nice to work with, doesn't get upset, you know, does what he says he's going to do and, and sticks to his word. Um, I, and I think there's a couple ways to, to go about doing that. Uh, the owner of our company now is a, a former broker. He spent about 20 years as an apartment broker. So he always stresses to, to me and my partner, be easy to do business with. And what that means is, you know, Do as much work on a property before you put a letter of intent together and before you sign a purchase agreement so you're not the group that goes around tying up properties and then figuring out if you want to buy them or not. Certainly, you know, there's due diligence you need to do and there's unit walks and reviewing leases and there can always be stuff that comes up that um, you, you weren't expecting or you didn't know about but If we're buying a $20 million apartment community, we're going to do as much work as we can uh, before we put our initial offer in. And then if we get the property and we're working through due diligence, we're not going to retrade. If we see a, you know, if there's a $5,000 hiccup that that comes up that we didn't know about, you know, if you want to be easy to do business with and get repeat business from sellers and brokers, the smartest thing to do is to to eat that $5,000 yourself and continue on in the process.
1: What are some other ways that you and your team are easy to work with and make brokers look good?
0: I think, again, I think the main thing is to, to do what you you know, stick to your word. Make an offer that you feel good about and then make it happen. Be very responsive. Be very respectful. Anytime you're speaking to the, the broker or the seller, uh, remember that you're trying to create a win-win-win situation You know, I I use a a personal example. I've been trying to buy properties in Nashville since since 2012. Uh, It's a great it's a very competitive market down there. There's some fantastic growth and long term demographics that are that are really working in favor of Nashville right now. And what I started doing in, in 2012 was I made it my mission to become friends with the top apartment brokers in that market. And the way I did that was by underwriting and touring just about every deal that they had listed, even if it was something I knew that I wasn't going to necessarily want to buy. uh, But I wanted those brokers to know that we were credible, serious buyers. And after I toured the deal and run numbers, I always spent the time, again, even if I wasn't going to buy the property, talking them through how I personally analyzed it. You know, that allowed the brokers to kind of understand, okay, this is how this guy thinks about deals. Uh, And then I think, you know, I did that for a couple of years and and it works out because last fall I got a call from one of those brokers who who let me know there was a deal about to come out that he thought would be a great fit for us kind of based on what he knew. We jumped on it right away. And so by the time it came time to make an offer, we knew the deal inside and out and we had to get aggressive. You have to get aggressive in today's market to win deals. Uh, You sometimes have to stretch your number uh, a little further than you're comfortable with. And you have to feel really good about a deal if you're going to do that. And we had done the work up front uh, and we so we, we ultimately won the deal and we won the deal because the brokers knew us. They could vouch for us. They knew we were credible. And so this broker had no reservations about recommending us to the seller. We worked through some very difficult issues during due diligence. We were able to, as I said, communicate with them, be very open and honest about the challenges we were facing and we ultimately closed the deal uh, ahead of schedule. And it, it's funny, we it doesn't happen all the time, but we did such a good job on this one that the seller actually called, called us afterwards, said we were great to work with and that he'd be happy to be a reference for us in the future. So we bought a great deal. The broker had a good experience, made money, looked really good. And the seller felt like he sold his property, made money and had a good experience. I mean, that was a a win-win-win that, uh, you know, was a really great experience to be part of. And that's, that's what we shoot for. And, you know, funny enough, the same thing just happened recently with the other broker in Nashville. I've been, I've been getting to know, uh, we'll be closing our second deal there uh, next month.
1: What are some, you mentioned really quickly, and then we'll go into lightning round. You mentioned difficult issues during due diligence, and you also mentioned stretch your numbers a little more than you're comfortable with. Follow-up question for each. One, what were the difficult issues And then two, how much can you stretch your numbers before it becomes too much stretching?
0: Okay, well, those are both very good questions, Joe. I'll I'll take them in order here. As far as things that came up during due diligence, uh, on the deal in Nashville, it had a HUD certification as part of the deal. It it had nothing to do with the rents or the income limits or anything like that. But when the property was built uh, in the early 1980s, there was a HUD requirement that it remain an apartment community for, for 50 years. Uh, so what we had to do was get in touch with HUD and just simply get that certification transferred from the seller to our, our company. Uh, it was a, basically a formality that we thought would, ha- would take you know, a few days. It ended up taking us about a month and a half of, of working nonstop just to simply get that piece of paper transferred. The seller had to do a bunch of work. We had to do a bunch of work. And the, the broker had to do a, a number of things that they typically don't. And, you know, it was just a big challenge that we had to get through together. And, and I think by being open and honest and, you know, when I had an issue with it or there was a problem, I would call them and say, listen, guys, here's what's happening. Here's my plan to fix it. But I want to make you aware of what's happening. Uh, and I think they appreciated that. And the other thing was there was a huge snowstorm in Nashville the week we were closing and a bunch of the underground pipes under the parking lot burst. Uh oh. And the parking lot, as you can and you can imagine, a city like Nashville is not prepared for big snowstorms. So all of a sudden, our parking lot was in shambles, and, and there was all kinds of work that had to be done. So there was a lot of coordination with with us, with the sellers, and with the brokers to to get that resolved uh, and get everything closed on time. And and thankfully, we were able to do that.
1: When that happens, who pays for it?
0: Um, on that one, we the seller paid for most of it. Uh, we ended up paying for some of it ourselves as well.
1: And then stretching the dollars?
0: Stretching the dollars, sure. Um, In today's market, as as I'm sure you know and and many of the best ever listeners know, it is an extremely, extremely competitive multifamily market. Uh, We're competing against pension funds, foreign money. There's more equity-chasing apartment deals right now in 2015 than there's probably been in the last 20 years. So buying deals where you're looking for a certain cap rate and a certain interest rate on your loan and a certain spread between that. Um, the, those spreads are going down and down and down. So what, what you need to do is, to win deals in today's market, um, you're going to need to stretch your number. So what, what, I, what I mean by that is, um, we, we typically hold properties for the long term. Uh, we look to put, usually, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac debt on the, on the deals, 10-year fixed loans, sometimes 12-year fixed loans now, uh, to, to hold those properties for a while. And what you need to do is is decide, okay, if I want to continue to buy properties in today's market because the long-term demographics look good, the financing looks good, uh, to do that, I'm going to pay a little more than I would have had to a couple of years ago. And what you need to do is set a line in the sand and say, I like the property up to this point, and if you don't like it past that point, you have to stop. But that point has, I think, over the last couple of years, gotten pushed a little further for people, and, and people are willing to, you know, f- two or three years ago, you wouldn't look at anything if you didn't have a 10% cash on cash return, and and now you may be happy with an eight and a half to nine percent cash on cash return.
1: Sean, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it, Joe. All right, first a quick word from our best ever partners, crowdfunding. You've heard about it, and now it's time to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor, Patch of Land, is a leading expert in the crowdfunding space, and they've got all the answers to your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-E-N-D.com forward slash best ever. Are you still chasing down rent checks every month? Cozy provides free online rent collection and screening tools to landlords just like you. Automate your business for free. Sign up at cozy.co, that's C-O-Z-Y dot C-O. Sean, what's the best ever book you've read?
0: You know, I, I can't think of my best ever book and not mention Rich Dad Poor Dad because that book changed the course of my entire life, but I'd also like to mention one other book that I'm guessing not as many people have read. That's Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman, Harvard PhD and New York Times writer. He was the first to, to really bring emotional intelligence and it's important to the mainstream. I've always found that to be just a fascinating concept and I think that's one of the things that's helped me uh, navigate my career. and. You know, I have to mention Mastery by Robert Greene. I'm currently reading that book. And and what an absolute genius that guy is.
1: That guy is an absolute genius. My favorite book or one of them is 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. I also have read The Art of Seduction by Robert Greene. Haven't read that, the one you just referred to, but I, I will. And for any best ever listener, we have a conversation with Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, on this show, episode 262. So go ahead and check that out. But not right now. Let's finish up this conversation. Best ever personal growth experience and what you learned from it.
0: Joe, I think that was taking the huge risk of, of leaving my successful sales job early in my career and becoming the receptionist at, at Thompson Dorfman Partners. Probably the biggest risk of my life up to that point, and as I said before on paper, it didn't make sense, but my gut told me it was the right move, and you know, I learned two really important lessons from that. One is just to surround yourself with great people. I could have done great work at that firm, but if my bosses weren't great people and true to their word as well, I never would have left that front desk, and secondly, you know, if I need to bet on something, I've really learned to bet on myself. Every time I'm facing a difficult decision, I talk to my wife. She always reminds me, hey, bet on yourself. And, you know, it's interesting. I read somewhere the other day that if you're not betting on yourself, you're actually actively betting against yourself.
1: Best ever success habit you practice?
0: Maybe you can tell because I, I listed three books when you asked me about the best <laughs> ever
1: book, but... Indecisiveness?
0: Yeah. I read as much <laughs> as possible. Uh, and I've actually started listening to podcasts just like yours uh, when I'm in the car. I'm a big believer that, you know, we're only here for a short while and, and you don't have enough time to learn all the lessons you need to in life on your own. And I really think that's where books come in. I feel like you in a few days you can read someone's entire life story and pull all the lessons and experiences out of it that you need.
1: Best ever deal you've done?
0: We invest primarily in the, in the Midwest and the Southeast. So as I said, we're typically looking for cash flow. We'd like to say we're trying to make a hit singles and doubles. But every once in a while, you know, you get lucky and hit a home run. But a year and a half ago, a nice looking deal came up for sale on Auction.com. Property was in very good condition, didn't need much work, it was 204 units built in 2004 and it had been foreclosed upon by a lender uh, the year before that. We didn't know anything about Auction.com, but I made it my mission to kind of learn everything as quickly as I could. We weren't allowed to walk the units or do your typical due diligence prior to bidding. Then we found out if we were the winning bidder, we'd actually have to put down over a million dollars of non-refundable earnest money uh, the day after the auction. But it was a clean deal. We liked the location, so we took the risk and decided to bid, and we ended up being the winning bidder on the property and felt that uh, despite the risks, we got a great price on the property. We had to close very, very quickly, Uh, so we used a floating bank, uh, bank loan to finance the purchase. And when we refinance the property nine months later into into our typical 10-year fixed rate loan, it appraised for $2 million above our purchase price.
1: Best ever project you're most excited about right now?
0: You know, Joe, I'm really passionate about real estate and housing in particular. And I'm just honestly really excited about the long-term future of housing. I feel like we're living in a really exciting time. Our cities are changing. The country's projected to add millions and millions of people in the next 20 years. I'm just really excited to be part of city building and, and positive change. And you know, on a, on a personal note, my wife and I had our first kid a couple of years ago and I'm super excited every single day about being a husband and, and being a father.
1: Well, congratulations on being a father. That's awesome. Thank you. What's the best ever way you like to give back?
0: I volunteer a lot of my time uh, and have held several leadership positions with the Urban Land Institute, uh, which is a nonprofit land use organization that the mission is to create thriving and sustainable communities worldwide.
1: Best ever quote.
0: I was a baseball player, Joe, and a hockey player growing up prior to all the other crazy things I did. And my favorite quote has always been Wayne Gretzky, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take.
1: What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate?
0: Biggest mistake is definitely the times that I've second-guessed myself and not acted on opportunities that I knew were opportunities. I should have bought as much real estate as I could between 2009 and 2011, maybe, maybe early 2012 as well. When I moved to Minneapolis in late 2009 and got to know the area, and then throughout 2010, it seemed an opportune time to buy real estate. I saw opportunities all over the place. I had access to some of them, but I didn't execute on them. I was concerned that, you know, I was new to this market. Maybe I was missing something. And in hindsight it turned out I had fresh eyes and, and that was a huge advantage. But the lesson for the future that I take away is that from that is is to always be aware of where we are in the real estate cycle and not to be afraid to be aggressive and buy property in down markets because that's really where the money's made. We're looking at a lot of deals and seeing a lot of deals today that people bought in 2009, 2010, and 2011, and and they're turning around now four or five years later and selling them and and making an absolute killing. Now's a great time to be a seller, but as I said, you have to have something to sell.
1: Best ever place to reach you
0: few different places you can reach me. Uh, I think LinkedIn. Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so you can look me up, Sean Sweeney. Uh, you'll find me there in Minneapolis. You can also email me directly at Sweeney, and my last name is spelled S-W-E-E-N-E-Y at timberlandpartners.com. That's all one word. Or uh, as I've heard some other guests do, Joe, I'll, I'll tell people you can call me, especially if, a, if you have a good apartment deal uh, or any acting gigs, uh, 612-919-3461. <laughs>
1: enlightening wonderful conversation totally informative and you are the epitome of what a best ever guest delivers to the listeners and I'm, I'm so grateful for this conversation i know the best ever listeners are some of the things i i took away from it one just your approach to business to life where You throw yourself in a situation based on a gut feeling. Also, I like the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell where he talks about we thin thin slice things based on all of our cumulative experiences. And in addition to it being your gut experience, I think it was also the accumulation of your experience from law and from uh, the sales job at the money management company where you saw an opportunity here because you wouldn't have just taken that receptionist gig at any company. It, it, It was this one in particular that you were betting on. And just throwing yourself in there, learning it, then also I love how you got into the specifics of how do you determine which deals to focus on because you get a ton of deals on a weekly basis and you went through step by step 1 does it fit our buying criteria 2 how about the location what's it look like 3 what's the story behind the property who owns it what's the motivation is there a value add opportunity 4 calling the broker figuring out what are they where are they thinking what are they thinking the price will shake out To be, what's the competition? How many people are gonna put an offer on this place? How many do they anticipate? And then, five the back of the napkin where you take the income uh, which is the effective gross income or you take the income then you take 50% of the expenses from the effective gross income and then you've got an NOI then you see what the cap rate is for that area and then you got a valuation. then you see if you're you're close to where uh, where where they're wanting to sell it at Thank you also for offering to share that one sheet for the the numbers that spreadsheet best ever listeners, I'll go ahead and put that in the show notes page. Just click the link right there at joefairless.com and you can get that spreadsheet for yourself. Well, thank you so much again, Sean. Wonderful conversation. And lastly, is there anything else you want to mention to best ever listeners?
0: No, not really, Joe. I just want to thank you for the opportunity. It was it was great to talk to you. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you found some some value in what I had to say.
1: All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Joe.
0: Hey, you best ever listener. Do you want more?